0: And I actually got into doing geospatial through journalism, which I suppose is a strange entry point to geospatial. But this happened for me because I got involved in a kind of journalism called open source intelligence. And this uses a lot of geospatial data for cross-referencing things.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Michael Cruikshank. So Michael is a, a journalist. And just recently, he's gotten into geospatial. So today on the podcast, we're talking about how he combines his journalistic work with with geospatial data and geospatial techniques. And we're going to be talking about something called open source intelligence. So just for a bit of context, um, I'm recording this on the 2nd of the 3rd, 2022, and Russia has just declared war on Ukraine. And so uh, my social media feed has been flooded with you know, images and pictures and people claiming this and that, and it feels like information. But it, you know, we've all heard of fake news before, it's really difficult to know what, what is information, what should I be paying attention to. So I thought it'd be very helpful and timely to have someone like Michael on the podcast and helps help us understand what open source intelligence is, perhaps the role of geospatial in terms of, of journalism now and, and going forwards, and how we can use geospatial to tell stories really important, critical stories like the one that's unfolding right now in Ukraine. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to to join me today. Really appreciate it. So in just a second, we're going to talk about open source uh, geospatial journalism, and we'll dive into exactly what that means in just a second for the listeners. But before we get there, can can you just take the time to introduce
0: yourself and perhaps explain how you got involved in geospatial and journalism? Right, so hi, I'm Michael Cruikshank. I'm a journalist originally from Australia, and I actually got into doing geospatial through journalism, which I suppose is a strange entry point to geospatial. But this happened for me because I got involved in a kind of journalism called open-source intelligence. And this uses a lot of geospatial data for cross-referencing things, but using techniques such as geolocation. And this first brought me in contact with satellite imagery through Google Earth and this sort of thing. And then I just became more and more interested in, you know, what this data is, how can I use it to do more than just, you know, look at it, what stories are there that kind of lie beneath the pixels, so to speak, of the data, and how can I use this in more interesting ways. And so from there, I started, yeah, I taught myself how to program and work more deeply with this data. I've learned how to use all these different geospatial tools, uh, programs, and this kind of thing. And I've also, I'm doing academic research now, I'm doing a master's thesis where I'm using these kind of data to investigate links between climate change and conflict, as well as I'm also working professionally at a company in Berlin called Liveio, where uh, we use geospatial data to provide information for industries on things like uh, environmental issues or like forestry, as well as uh, monitoring uh, industrial assets and all sorts of things like this. So it's quite a broad range of things that I'm involved in these days.
1: So it sounds like you're, you're moving away from journalism and into geospatial. What kind of skills can you already see that are going to be really helpful in that move that you'll take with you from journalism and over to the geospatial side of things?
0: I I wouldn't so much as say I'm moving away from journalism, so much as I'm trying to tell a different kind of story to a different kind of person. Whereas in the past, my thinking was all about you know how do I inform people about what is going on. I I came to the conclusion that while like I, I still want to inform as many people as much as I can about what is going on. I also want to be able to reach more the kind of people who are actually, you know, making the decisions in the world and providing them with kind of information on uh, how things will go into the future. I'm particularly interested in looking at the effects of climate change and the security implications of this. And I want to be able to provide insights on this prediction, analysis, et cetera, using geospatial and using some of the uh, my background in journalism, on thinking about the real effects of this, how it can happen and also how to present this kind of information in a way that's engaging to people so they actually take it seriously and and just reach in a more targeted way the kind of people who can actually make a change in this world.
1: You you had this great sentence there. You said something like, I want to tell different stories to a a different kind of people. What was it about traditional journalism that you felt like wasn't working or, or could be better?
0: I felt that in many ways... People were flooded by the same story. You could, I, I i was working in conflict journalism, so perhaps you could go to a country, you can go to the front line of their wars, you can tell a story of, you know, like, oh, it's, it's very awful. And I mean, it definitely is awful what is going on in these kind of places. But it's the unfortunate matter of fact is that so many people are telling these kind of stories. People just tend to switch off and you need to find a different way of reaching them with a different kind of story. One that engages them in a different kind of way and perhaps tells a bigger picture or a different picture.
1: I think you're absolutely right with that. I think that's that's an absolutely brilliant insight. I guess that the danger is when we think about engagement, we sort of fast forward this trend towards the short, the the incredibly clickable link bait, that kind of thing. And I really do feel like we are a world trending shallow as opposed to deep. And we, we see this in all the social and media trends generally. It's quick, short snippets. Do you feel like that's the, the way to go? Because if we speak, if we think about engagement, the numbers speak for themselves. That seems to be what people want, what people engage with. But when I think about journalism, for example, I kind of expect something deeper.
0: Yeah, and uh, you're well within your rights to. And I, I certainly think that going after the kind of engagement that you're talking about is a bad thing for publications, for journalists to do. I, I suppose when I talk about engagement, I don't mean someone just reading something, clicking it, sharing it, liking it, reacting to it. What I mean is someone who's really taking stock of what is, uh, of what is written, what is they've seen, et cetera, and thinking about it and incorporating that knowledge into their life and their decision-making. So
1: I have to ask here, we are overwhelmed with media. We are flooded with information and in, in data. How do you think your media, your style, this, this idea that you're going after here is going to cut through the noise?
0: I'm not going to put myself up on some pedestal and say I could solve this problem on my own. what I think is it forms part of a body of of information which is more verifiable and forms more of a ground truth or a reality of what has happened or what is going to happen rather than just a thousand different conflicting reports from different directions within the political sphere or different interested groups etc and I, I think that part of the way that we combat this flood of information is simply providing people with better information rather than just increasing the, the amount of it or telling them to consume less instead we should suggest and provide the op- option for them to instead consume just better information
1: yeah I, I totally agree i feel like that that volume game that you're talking about there inevitably leads to a lesser quality of information or lesser quality of work because it's it's a volume game right it's about an getting the amount out there as much as possible. Exactly, yeah. So Mm -hmm. I know you've come a long way in your journey with Geospatial. I know that you're programming a couple of different languages now. Could you explain to me what it was like right at the start? I mean, were you using tools like uh, Google Earth just to look at the images and see what was on them and try and geolocate stuff there, or were you using something completely different to that?
0: No, I was was using Google Earth or Google Maps, these sort of platforms, uh, and just purely analysing things on a visual level. There was no sort of looking at the sort of data behind it. It was just all about, you know, identifying things that appeared in pictures using this video location. And yeah, so I was using platforms like uh, Google Earth, also using Wikimapia and a few other things to get sort of different kinds of images or different uh, dates of images. But beyond that, I hadn't gone particularly deep into it.
1: Okay, so so that's where you came from. You you started off using these very simple visualization tools like uh, Google Maps, I believe you said. Where are you now? What tools are you using um, and where do you get your data from when you think about doing uh, open source geospatial journalistic work?
0: Yeah, so these days I'm using a large number of different data sources, but I think the primary and most useful one that I'm using these days is Google Earth Engine, which of course is very different to uh, Google Earth itself. A Google Earth Engine, as some of the listeners might be aware, is a multi petabyte catalog of a huge amount of, of open source satellite imagery from things like the uh, European Copernicus program, the Sentinel satellites, as well as NASA's Landsat program and many others. And the, the beauty of Earth Engine is that it allows people to basically program with the data and you don't have to download these very large raster images and all this kind of thing to your computer. You can work with it all remotely and the processing is done off your computer. So this is quite powerful because it means that you don't have to mess around with huge amounts of files and huge amounts of processing power locally. So maybe I made a mistake.
1: I've been saying open source geospatial here, but, but Google Earth Engine is not open source, even though some of the data might be. Are there any other tools you're, you've been using or have I have I made a mistake on my end?
0: So uh, yeah, by open source, in this case, I was referring to the data itself. Uh, Earth Engine itself is certainly not open source, and um, you can only use it for non-commercial applications, uh, as far as I'm aware anyway. In terms of fully open source programs, I use QGIS as well, significantly. So for when I'm doing more visual-related output, more than processing, more than programming, uh, more than analytical stuff, when I'm doing visual, I will use QGIS. And then for the more programming side of things, I'll usually use Google Earth Engine.
1: So let's stay with Google Earth Engine for a second here. What, what are you doing? I know you can make these amazing time lapses in, in Google Earth Engine. What kind of analysis
0: are you doing in there? So the kind of analysis that I'm doing, really, it depends on the kind of use case. Basically, you can do any kind of transformation of the data. So if you imagine these satellite images are raster arrays, effectively, of just data points, You can do any kind of uh, mathematical operations on this data. You can compare bands. You can compare images over time. You can create custom visualizations of it. You can create programs that just access this data and then work with it in other ways. You can create front-end applications of this data, back-end, many different things. Recently, for instance, I wrote a small web program that enabled users to work with sentinel one imagery of some of these uh, russian military bases where they were building up troops uh, before they invaded ukraine and as this was taking data from earth engine specifically from uh, the sentinel one satellites and then uh, creating time lapses out of this or creating different kinds of visualizations out of this that was presented in such a way that a user could do this without any knowledge really of how to actually interpret this data because often, with especially with SAR, it's very difficult to get around what you're actually looking at unless you are experienced with working with this kind of data.
1: Okay. So when we say Sentinel, Sentinel-1, we're talking about the SAR band.
0: So I mean, Sentinel-1 is actually two satellites. One of them actually is currently non-operational. I'm not sure whether it's dead or just not working currently. So it's two satellites and they're both uh, synthetic aperture radar SAR satellites.
1: And, and what were you doing with this data? What kind of analysis could you do on SAR data that would give you information about what's happening with the, with the Russian military in this case?
0: So one interesting technique that I, that I was using was effectively, so the resolution of Sentinel-1 is quite low. It's 10 meters per pixel, approximately. And with this, obviously, you can't see something like a tank. A tank is smaller than a 10 meter square. But if you know the areas where the tanks are being stored, these bases, you have the polygons of these bases. When more vehicles move into this base, the mean reflectance uh, in the synthetic aperture radar increases. And so you can plot the mean over time to get an idea of whether the number of vehicles in the base is increasing or decreasing. Moreover, if you have a high-resolution uh, optical imagery, you can get a baseline of what a certain level of mean reflectance represents in terms of actual real numbers of vehicles.
1: Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. How do you ground truth something like that? Or can you use any other data sources to get an idea of perhaps a more precise number of how many tanks in in, in this case that there are in an area? Or can you incorporate other data sources into this kind of analysis?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in my case, I have been using just high very high resolution optical data as a ground truth that was taken on the same day. Obviously, this is not always possible because of clouds, especially uh, in the re- more recent months. In winter in Europe, it's very cloudy. So you have to kind of wait till you get a lucky break. But yeah, this this usually can be done with a very high resolution uh, optical.
1: How do you document this? And and what are the results of of this kind of journalism? Has it been cited anywhere? Are people using it as evidence anywhere? I guess what I'm looking for is almost like people referring back to this, almost like a peer review of, yes, this is accurate. Yes, this makes
0: sense. Looking at these uh, Russian military bases, this was getting a lot of play in the media. I mean, I wasn't the only one doing it. So obviously I'm not going to take all of the credit for this, certainly not. There were a large community of people within the open source intelligence community who were sharing this kind of analysis. And many of the initial stories about this buildup were coming from within this community and then were taken up later by the more mainstream media who themselves were tasking even higher resolution satellite imagery for their stories and so on and so forth. So yeah, this this really did get picked up in the lead up to the invasion. And it helped, in many ways, lend credence to what countries like the United States were saying when they were saying, you know, there's definitely going to be an invasion. This is how it's going to happen. They have all these troops here. The advantage of having people doing this kind of open source intelligence journalism, using things like geospatial data, is that we can then have a second data point and say, well, they're saying this, but now we can check if there really is data to back this up. And in this case, there certainly was. And we've seen what's happened since then.
1: Twitter is my social media drug of choice. And at the moment, my account is flooded with images and short video clips of tanks and, and military operations in, in the Ukraine, of course. But at the same time, I'm, I'm constantly wondering, is this real, this thing that I'm looking at? You know, d- does this make sense? Is, is it misinformation? Is it disinformation? Can, can I believe this? Maybe before we, we dive into this as a topic, perhaps you could explain the difference between misinformation and, and disinformation.
0: Right. So I'll start with misinformation. Misinformation is when someone shares a piece of information that is untrue. However, they don't necessarily know that that information is untrue. More often than not, they will probably believe that it is true. Whereas disinformation is the case when someone is maliciously and with intent sharing something that they know to be untrue. So that's, I suppose, where the differentiation lies. It's in whether the person sharing knows whether what they're sharing is true or not.
1: So this has been a huge problem, obviously not just in the current situation we're in now with uh, Russia and the Ukraine, but but also in other political theatres around the world. Is there any opportunity here to sort of prove or disprove some of this kind of information that we're seeing in social media feeds, for example, by doing the kind of journalistic work
0: that you're doing, or can we can we use this data together with what you're doing? Uh, absolutely, using open source intelligence is one of the best ways that we can actually prove or disprove whether something is indeed misinformation. The primary tool, of course, is geolocation where you can compare elements within say a video or an image to satellite imagery to work out whether it really is where it is said to have happened. And this often makes it very easy to filter out something which is misinformation or disinformation, something which is misrepresented because you can immediately see that, okay, this is indeed where it's said to have happened, which then leads credence to the idea that that is indeed true. Moreover, you can take geolocation further and move on to chrono-location, where you start using things like elements of the shadows within the videos and backing this up with geospatial data on the exact position to calculate the exact time that uh, a video or an image was taken. And this further leads uh, you down the path of whether this is true or something which is misrepresented.
1: So I can, I can definitely see that the power of geolocation here, but how do you do that? Are you just, are you looking for a, a name in, in the video, like a place name in the video? Are you looking at some sort of metadata in the video, perhaps the, the geolocation tag, that kind of thing? Or, or are you doing something completely different to locate that, that image or, or that video?
0: So if there is like a name or a place name or a shop name or a business name uh, within the video, this makes it obviously very easy. But more often than not, that's not present or the video is, has so low quality that uh, it's difficult to actually read what's written. So the more common way that this is done is by cross-referencing visual elements within the video to visual elements within satellite imagery. So this would be things like the architecture of the buildings, the specific layout of streets, of plants, and this kind of thing. And then thinking about what that same scene would look like from above, and then cross-referencing that scene with satellite imagery of the location, where um, the video or image is said to have taken place, and then seeing if you can work out exactly where this happened. And more often than not, you can work out not just where, but what angle the camera was pointing in, what time of the day, what time of the year, et cetera.
1: So this reminds me of trying to orientate a map. So looking at a map, looking for features that I can identify on a map, and then looking up in the real world and saying, okay, where are those features relative to me? Can I use them to orientate myself if I'm out hiking, for example? So, So this makes sense to me. But we live in a time of of deep fakes. You you will have seen these videos on the internet before. Is it possible to fake a location when when we think about the kind of work or or the kind of information we can glean from social media?
0: It is possible to fake a location or at least fake a plausible looking location. But in many ways, the fact that geolocation is 99% of the time possible in any video, if you can't find where somewhere is, if you can't get a fix on it, you have a pretty strong indication that this may indeed be a fake location. I haven't specifically heard any reports of videos that have been shared from things like conflict zones where the background has been completely faked using these kind of deep fake techniques, but it's certainly possible. There's a website, I believe, called something like This Place Does Not Exist that sort of generates these kind of deep fake landscapes, and there's no reason someone couldn't do something like this. It just would take a lot of effort. And looking at some of the misinformation or disinformation that's being spread around, most recently in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, most of it is pretty low effort. And this sort of stuff is takes a lot more effort, and I have yet to see it being used, especially at scale.
1: So I, I'm imagining that the, the power of this kind of journalism is when you can start you know, joining the dots, right? So you see something happening over here, you can connect it to a an event somewhere else, or you can see that things are moving. How do you keep track of these events? Like, How do you know, for example, that, oh, okay, I'm looking at tanks here now. I've I've used my SAR data. I can see that the the values are changing over time, so there's change over time. I've confirmed this one location using social media, for example, and uh, geo-referencing some of the videos or images that, I, that I've seen there, and this is sort of giving me a, a picture in my mind and understanding of what's happening, and then tomorrow the the, the tanks are gone, things have moved off. H-
0: how do you link that with with other events, or how do you find where they've gone? In My case, I tend to just try to create like, I approach it kind of like a a scientific or like a proof statement, almost. You're trying to prove that something happened or didn't happen, or trying to work out what the limits of what you can know are. So you try to create a chain of evidence going from the open data that you have, and then how those things link together, how you bring this all together, and how each of these things mutually reinforce, or instead weaken the argument of the other. And so in terms of your question, you asked, how would you know, you know, where the tanks have gone to? Okay, well, maybe after you've seen the the mean SAR values at this base decrease, then maybe a day or two later you start seeing videos pop up on TikTok of large columns of military vehicles moving around another town somewhere else in the same region. And so you think, okay, well maybe the vehicles are moving towards that area. You don't know where they're going. In my case recently, I created an, a map of an entire region, uh, oblast of Russia, just doing basically change detection in SAR and seeing which areas specifically had had large increases within the last like week or two. And then obviously you get a lot of false positives. You get things like snow melting, lakes melting, or different landscape changes. But some of these places, you know you might see a very large area of change in a polygon that looks perhaps somewhat artificial. And then you can sort of cross-reference this with other data and think, okay, well, maybe there is something there. And then you can download very high-resolution satellite imagery, optical imagery of this area to try to cross-reference, is this really something which is uh, interesting or suspicious?
1: i, I got to tell you, that this idea of, of using geospatial in this way for journalistic research is, is kind of new to me, I, I have to admit. But it makes perfect sense. Like It makes perfect sense. It seems like a great tool for this. Is this different from what you were doing when you were working as a journalist? Or is this completely different from the kind of work that, that journalists would,
0: would generally be doing? I think in some ways it is very different to traditional journalism. Traditional journalism is all about building human sources and your strength of your argument or of, of the story that you're writing is almost based on your level of access that you have to reputable or trusted or well-positioned human sources. So that is the skill. It's a networking skill in many ways. It's being in the right place at the right time, etc. Whereas this kind of journalism instead, it's about pulling together a whole lot of things that everyone knows or everyone could know, and then seeing how those things all work together to prove something and drawing connections that other people aren't. And unlike traditional journalism, where it's all based on, you know, you've got to trust that this is a reputable publication that wouldn't lie to you. You've got to trust that this anonymous source is really a real person, etc. The opposite is true with open source intelligence, the kind of journalism, in the sense that everything is effectively a proof statement. You don't need to trust the journalist. You can read through the way they've brought together their argument and their evidence and see if you agree with it. There's nothing that's hidden. Everything is in the open.
1: For me, this, this begs the question, why aren't big publishing media journalistic companies doing this? Or, or are they doing this? Do, do they have their open source in, intelligence like center within their within their magazine, within their, their media company?
0: Yeah, certainly over the last few years, there has been more and more mainstream media outlets, I suppose, that have been starting to use these techniques. So this is growing in popularity, but it's also a relatively new thing. This has really only started probably 2012, 2013. That was when the ball started rolling with this kind of thing. And it's just grown more and more in importance over time and in popularity and sort of the credibility that it has has certainly grown over time as well.
1: I'm pleased you brought up uh, credibility.
0: What, what do people say when they push back on this, when they,
1: when they don't believe it, it, it's a great idea? What, what kinds of arguments do they come with?
0: It really depends. A lot of the time, they simply just don't understand really what you're doing. They'll just say, well, you know, this isn't this isn't forensic enough, this isn't scientific, you're letting your own biases get in the way, your analysis is wrong, or they don't understand really how these things prove each other, and so they just say, well, you know, you're just hand-waving things around and saying that, you know, this, this equals this, and they don't really understand why this equals this, so they dismiss it. But to be fair, most of the criticism I've come across is more or less just bad faith criticism, in the sense that... These are people who have motivated reasoning and start with a position of you're definitely wrong because you're saying something I don't like. And so I, I find that there's little good faith criticism and it's mostly just bad faith, politically motivated criticism. So
1: you, you brought up a great point there that people didn't understand the analysis that you did. Perhaps they, they didn't understand the techniques. They didn't understand the, the data that was being used. I mean, you're telling people, ah, yeah, I look down from space and, and watch the change over time. I mean, it sounds
0: pretty fantastic. How do you explain that to people? Well, this is sometimes the harder part because you have to explain a bunch of things that aren't always intuitive. I suppose for people who work in things like geospatial, thinking in a spatial manner is very natural to us. But for other people, sometimes it's not. So imagining what a scene might look like from above, imagining what, how things could look over time Etc. or how things can be abstracted in a 2D or 3D format, this can be difficult for some people. So you need to make this easy. And so having really good visualizations, I think is incredibly important for this. I've seen some groups that make really nice videos that are sort of linking things together and uh, really nice effects to sort of show how things transition over time. And so I think it's all really in the kind of visual communication you use. So I think that's probably the most important part.
1: Yeah, that that visual communication, I'm really pleased that that you mentioned that, because oftentimes I think that the people that work in this field, in this industry of geospatial, we get stuck in it, you know, like we can only do analysis for big companies, for example. We can only work for municipalities, you know, organizing the data and maintaining the data. And when I meet people like you that are doing work like this, I, I think, wow, here is another opportunity. Here is something that people should know about. Because it makes so much sense what you're saying. We can use these tools that we know about, that we're comfortable with, and we can use them f- you know, to tell a story, essentially. And I think for me that the skill sounds like investigative journalism that tells a story, that, that backs it up with evidence. Do you see a, a future? Could you Could you imagine a time where new journalists need to learn these skills just in the same way they need to learn interviewing skills or other media skills that? data analysis is a part of their education.
0: Absolutely. I think, honestly, it will be critical going into the future because I think it's the only way that journalism can push back against the kind of flood of misinformation and disinformation that we're currently facing. And I think that this is a perfect way to combat it because rather than just saying, retreating back to sort of ideas of, well, I'm a reputable outlet or, you know, you have to trust me at my word. Instead, you're saying, no, don't trust me. You're right to not trust me. But here, I can prove it. And I think this will hold much, much more weight than simply asking people to take you at your word. And I think if more and more stories are presented in this way, then it won't be that so much that people trust media more, but correct information will get out more. And that's, in the end, what's important.
1: If you do a great job of documenting this kind of work, do you think this will help people think critically about like, how people draw conclusions when they see other types of journalistic work?
0: Absolutely. I think just this idea of thinking very forensically, thinking in terms of how you prove something and what proof really means and where the edges of what can be proven and can't be proven lie, it helps you really narrow down where the gaps in our knowledge are, where the area for debate lies, etc. And that way we don't spend so much time talking about things that are kind of extraneous or are red herrings within the conversation.
1: Michael, I think we could we could probably round things off here. Thank, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoy talking with you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. But before I let you go, though, a couple of things. I, I want to let people know where they can find you and reach out to you. But I'm also curious if you have any recommendations or references. If, if I want to learn more about this open source and intelligence, if I want to be a part of this, is there a community I can join? Is there a newsletter I can follow? Is there
0: somewhere I can go? Firstly, in terms of communities there's a great discord community called Project owl which I think currently has about 25,000 users yeah, it's growing very rapidly with you know hundreds of people working on all sorts of different projects all around the world all brought together by this kind of usage of collecting information from open sources especially about conflict zones but also about many other different areas as well and bringing this together and synthesizing this information and seeing you know what can we prove what can't we prove etc in terms of other sources online, I think the best group in the world who's doing this is Bellingcat. They're a UK-based publication uh, started by Elliot Higgins, and they've done some really great investigative work. I believe they've also won a Pulitzer Prize, if memory serves me correctly. For their work, they were looking at uh, MH17, some of the uh, Novichok poisoning attacks in the UK. They've done all sorts of interesting uh, look at different conflict zones around the world in Syria, in Yemen. I've also written a few articles for them myself, looking specifically, I believe, at Yemen and Ukraine. But yeah, there's lots of great people associated with this, and they're doing really good work all the time.
1: Again, Michael, th- thank you very much for your time. really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for talking to me. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael Crookshank. I will put links to his Twitter profile and his personal website in the show notes of this episode so you can catch up with him there if you are interested in finding out more or if you want to continue the conversation. So I found a few other articles that I, I want to link to and share with you. And one of them is called The Growing Problem with Deep Fake Geography, How AI Falsifies Satellite Pictures or Satellite Images. So there's another one here along the same lines, when is satellite imagery fake? And a third one, why newsroom people need expertise in remote sensing. I'm also going to include a link to a newsletter on Substack that I found that I think you might find interesting. It's called actualcontrol.substack.com. And if I read the headline of, of this blog newsletter, it says a blog about satellite imagery, social media and other open source information that all corners from all corners of the internet. There'll also be a link to the publishing house that Michael mentioned, called Bellingcat, and, and and I guess before I let you go, I just want to highlight a one of Michael's insights, and that was at some stage during the the start of the conversation, he said something like, I, I, I guess I wanted to tell a different story to a different kind of person, and he used this this idea of telling better stories, and I think this is really important, telling better stories. So we we talk about data stories, and we and we talk about customer journey stories. But we never talk about telling better stories. And in Michael's case, Michael wanted to tell better stories. And he wanted to do that because he, he discovered that the old stories weren't working anymore. They were being drowned out. They were too similar. Everyone was telling the same story. So it wasn't sinking in anymore. It, became, it was blending in. It was becoming part of the background noise. So that sounds really simple, right? Tell a better story. So, so what does a better story look like? Now, I'm not completely convinced you need to know what a better story looks like, or the right story looks like. I'm more convinced that you need to try a new story. And I think if you try enough new stories, you'll find the right story. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I'll be back again next week with a new story. I hope that you'll join me then. Bye.